Hello, everyone. Thank you for downloading the Green Majority Podcast. Just a quick announcement before we get started on the show today that finally, after teasing it for a few weeks, uh, we will have some information about the uh, position that we're going to be offering here to help us here at the Green Majority. Uh, that's going to be coming out in a bonus show format, uh, something we haven't done for a little while, and one of the things we hope to be able to do more often once we have some help. Uh, so that's going to be coming out as bonus shows would normally have been done on Monday. So if you're seeing this live on Friday, check late back on Monday or just get subscribed to the podcast. It will be released as a uh, podcast episode. Uh, It's just going to be some information about what it is exactly that we're looking for. And uh, so stay tuned for that. If you or someone you know might be interested in joining our team, uh, it's uh, of course would be easier if you're in Toronto, but you don't have to be in Toronto. So uh, regardless, uh, check for that on uh, uh, later Monday or possibly Tuesday morning. Uh, And uh, with regard to that, if you're, if you don't uh, think you can help, but would like uh, with regard to the role, but would like to help us in other ways, you can help us pay for this new staff member. Uh, we have about currently half of the funding we need to be able to actually hire someone to do this. We, we're looking to pay someone about $400 a month. Uh, we have currently about $200 a month in subscriptions. So if uh, if you uh, uh, would like to help the show, this is a very tangible way you can do that. Uh, getting someone, a paid person in here to help us produce it would definitely tangibly inc- uh, improve the show in very, uh, very noticeable ways. So you can go ahead and become our patron uh, with Patreon. Uh, and be a member. The recommended donation is $5. You can go higher, you can go lower, depending on your budget. Totally up to you, but we would appreciate very much uh, anything you can offer to help uh, pay for this new person. As I said, we're looking to, we need to raise about $200 more a month in monthly uh, members to be able to uh, pay for them uh, as well. So uh, so that uh, can be done at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Green Majority. Go ahead and uh, do that whenever you can. That would be great. And other than that, stay tuned uh, Monday or Tuesday for uh, the final post with the information uh, that you can uh, you can then apply for uh, once you have a look at that. All right. Without uh, further delay, please enjoy this week's episode of the Green Majority Podcast. Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, uh, perhaps one of our wonderful radio syndicates, or perhaps on the podcast at greenmajority.ca. Uh, this is uh, Stefan Hostetter here with, uh, also in studio, of course, uh, is host uh, Saren Kaster. So this is what the... <laughs> we didn't think we were going to throw to you, and so we didn't give you a mic. So this is what the co-pilot chair was, uh, was, feels like. Is yeah, exactly. Say. Part of the co-pilot chair is that we actually get, we control when you get to speak or not. Yeah. Uh, so I've never felt you. so helpless. <laughs> Uh, we got a great show for you today, uh, starting actually with a special interview uh, that is conducted uh, by the one and only uh, Dave Hostetter and uh, with Broadleaf Theatre. And I'm just, we're just going to let, we're gonna, they do all of the read-in for us, uh, which is super helpful. So I'm just going to let them take it away here. Uh, we're going to come back in about 40 minutes. Um, and, and and we'll get to some news at that point. But uh, but really, this is this is a opportunity to chat with them. They're a fantastic uh, theater company that sort of tries to work on environmental issues. And Dave was able to sit down with them and get a good 40 minutes of their time, which is amazing. Uh, and so, really, uh, we're just going to let them take it away, if that is possible. 
Yep. All right. Uh, carrying forward for half a second as we experience some wonderful technologies. In I will explain what the news will cover actually in the, in the at the end, which is the sort of much more depressing uh, news about out of Nebraska. Now this is sort of a long-awaited expect. Uh, um, it's interesting how it was sort of the last. Uh, or in some of the low is the last hope of stopping the Keystone XL pipeline decision, um, which was what's at stake uh, and what comes next. And it's uh, going for, through Nebraska recently, just basically the regulators decided uh, that uh, th- that it, would be go- it could go through. It was the last regulatory hurdle facing the project. So they've now passed that hurdle as well. And we are really looking at what happens. What happens now? Uh, and do we have any hope of stopping it? Yeah, I think part of the part of the tease on that uh, was that I was really shocked as I was reading that on the way over here uh, that there was a word. It was sort of like, you know, lost a court battle. And then the following sentence, it was lawyers for Sierra Club Canada are excited. And I couldn't remember, and I'm sure it's happened, but I couldn't remember the last time that I'd read the word sort of like environmental lawyer and excited in the same <laughs> sentence. Uh, but I was like, oh, they seem pretty optimistic. So yeah, we'll get into we'll get into the more of the details. Uh, we're just uh, just waiting for a, t- a technical problem to fix itself. And it has. Seems like we're good. But yeah, that's your tease for the end of the program. Yeah. So stick around uh, and take it away, Dave. My name is David Hostetter with uh, Kevin Matthew Wong and Julia Howman of Broadleaf Theatre, which is a Toronto-based environmentalist theatre company founded in 2014. Kevin Matthew Wong is the co-founder and artistic director and producer of Broadleaf Theatre, who is working with Julia Howman on a play called The Chemical Valley Project, which will be the focus of our discussion today. Uh, but uh, first, thank you guys for being on the show today. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Uh, first, I just wanted to ask, I suppose, about Broadleaf in general. Uh, what is Broadleaf? Why, how did it first come about? Sure. So Broadleaf Theatre is a company that uh, we say seeks to merge uh, environmentalism and theatre praxis. Mm. So essentially the way that manifests is in the subject matter of our plays and also in the ways that our plays look. So we try to minimize the means of production that go into the creation of theater. Theater generally is quite wasteful, actually. Uh, it's more wasteful than you would expect as a general patron. Okay. Um, numerous times have I seen uh, complete sets go straight to the straight to the dump. I think that's quite common practice. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah. I've loaded them out into dumpsters before. Yes. <laughs> so the the amount of of material that goes into putting on a play, and there's probably 10 or 15 plays going on every single night in Toronto uh, is immense. Mm. Even Uh, just the ways from programs alone. uh, Totally. So Broadleaf uh, was created to speak to Canadian environmental topics and Canadian environmental perspectives, and also to minimize the means of production and hopefully change the way that Toronto theaters operate. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, I didn't even think about that aspect of uh, uh, actually making sure the theater itself is less wasteful. I suppose that somewhat answers my uh, curiosity about how Broadleaf as a theater company could merge environmental concerns with the aesthetic demands of the theater. Uh, So, I mean, on the one hand, I suppose there's that dropping off of the objects at the end, but there's also uh, the way in which the theater is is able to address environmental concerns in the way in which another medium might not be able to. Yeah. uh... Well, definitely, I think one thing that plays into that and how we've created the show and how the aesthetics feed back to just the general practice and like ethics of the company. Like basically every single proper set piece that we use in this show specifically is a found object. So we didn't really buy 
almost anything new for really this it's all found that's cool yeah we our our mutual friend Chantel actually uh-huh. gave us our main set piece which is mm-hmm. a shelf we just found that on in her studio <laughs> yeah she found that on the streets she's a big street picker yeah. and she brought it to her studio and we yeah. found it and she gave it to us so totally. stuff like that we reuse a lot of paper props in the show mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. yeah it it ended up becoming definitely a part of the aesthetic of the show to reuse mm-hmm. and like the the wear and tear kind of became part of the concept rather than something to be avoided which is you'll often find in a production we need fresh paper props every night sure. we need mm-hmm. which yeah consumables yeah uh, in, in the industry they're called consumables things yeah. that you have to to buy every single night um yeah and i think in terms of form theater as a form as an environmental uh, a, a place of conversation i think there is a bunch of opportunity for theater to to um serve conversations that are happening outside of the theater mm-hmm. and also to deepen people's engagement with the, with issues i think that the core of like what theater is is like a it's like a community mm-hmm. space it's a town hall essentially for the, in the way back and you know um and i think we've sort of lost that with a lot of the commercial theater yeah. that we have and broadleaf is sort of actively trying to to shift the, the pendulum back mm-hmm. to making the theater a place where important conversations and local conversations need to happen because it's it's pretty incredible that theater audiences are a collection of people from the community mm-hmm. um, it's not um, you're seeing something that's made in your community inspired by your community it should also be about what's happening in your community so yeah mm-hmm. yeah well that's cool I'm not sure if this is going to be a relevant question now, but just sticking with Broadleaf in general, have you discovered any sort of significant compromises that you've had to make one way or the other uh, in terms of either the uh, artistic integrity of a play or the uh, integrity of the um, social message uh, in order to make an effective play in the genre of uh, environmentalist theater? And how can it be considered activist theater? Sure. I could say about the piece and then maybe you can say about the whole. One thing that it kind of plays back into what we were just talking about is just the scale of the production. We've created the piece to be able to be performed in a lot of different venues, such as community centers and libraries, smaller venues that are not really traditionally theater spaces in order Mm -hmm. to reach audiences that may not necessarily often see performance, live performance pieces. that plays back into wanting to reform the way theater is seen. But at the same time, we've also presented in larger venues, like a couple hundred seat houses before. And once we go into our like actual practical residency at Theater Passing MRI into our development weeks, we're creating for a much larger space than we performed in before. Mm-hmm. So just the scaling of the production from a small venue that may not have the same technical support that a larger performance venue might have definitely has brought up some kind of, for me at least, in terms of design, like ethical dilemmas that feed back into the piece, like what's what becomes more important with design concepts. Maybe if we can't achieve certain lighting effects or video effects in mm-hmm. this small place where we only have an hour to set up versus a larger theater where we may have days to tech the show with more sophisticated theatrical lighting. Mm. What are we sacrificing aesthetically and how does that play into the story that we're trying to tell people and the message that we're trying to convey? Mm. 
Um, I would say in terms of like content and, and creating work about environmental issues and the question of whether we have to compromise um, on what we believe, I think it's an occasional thing that we have to do, but it's, it's also understanding that our audience is coming from a different place. Mm -hmm. When we're creating work, it, it, it can't just be exactly what we think about an issue. Uh, one of the reviews from the Chemical Valley Project said that the audience member, uh, the critic, felt that they could put themselves into um, the ideas in the piece. And I think that, for me, I would consider that a success. Um, so maybe compromise isn't the right word, but we have to create space so that people can actually place themselves into the, into the topics. And we want to give them the facts about the topics that we're talking about, but we don't want to steer them completely in one direction or tell them what to think. Mm -hmm. um, I think the point of theater being a community space and a town hall type space is that people can, can and should question what we're presenting. Mm -hmm. And our goal then is to understand where we might need to compromise and uh, use that as a tool for ourselves in the creation of content mm -hmm. um, to understand how best to communicate what we actually feel. Mm -hmm. So, the Chemical Valley Project is a theatrical production highlighting the work of indigenous water protectors and land defenders Vanessa and Lindsay Gray for their community of Amgenang, located in the so-called Chemical Valley. Um, I'm just going to introduce the Chemical Valley in general and we can uh, go from there. So, according to what I have, Chemical Valley is a collection of some 58 petrochemical facilities and refineries spanning 25 kilometers around Sarnia, Ontario. Uh, it is responsible for around 40% of Canada's total chemical product. The Amgenong First Nation is situated at the south end of the city, technically within the boundaries of Sarnia. However, half of Chemical Valley's industrial facilities operate within five kilometers of Amgenang, placing the community in the center of by far the densest petrochemical processing hub in the country. Uh, there are playgrounds and community buildings sometimes directly adjacent to the facilities of Dow Chemical Suncor, Shell in particular, which in January 2014 leaked the highly toxic and potentially lethal substance of hydrogen sulfide into the air. Floating over a daycare and sending children to the hospital, uh, Shell initially refused to own up to the leak, which caused the children to suffer longer unnecessarily since the chemical in the air was still unknown. Its toxicity is comparable to that of carbon monoxide and can poison several different systems in the body, although the nervous system is most affected. It was used on two occasions as a chemical weapon by the British in World War I. And this is just one chemical, one incident, uh, in the ongoing experience of the community. Um, the Environmental Justice Atlas has stated that the residents of Amgenang are living in an industrial sacrifice zone. Um, is there anything you would add to that description or change about it based on your visits there, uh, uh, experience with the community and so forth? Um, I wouldn't say there's anything that I would change about your description, but to, to add um, some some of the lived experience from people in Amgenang is uh, the source material for our show. Mm -hmm. So connecting with Vanessa and Lindsay on Facebook, you would see that every single day they're posting about leaks from these factories. Um, what's shocking to me as a creator is seeing that the most direct line of communication uh, to let people know about these leaks is social media rather than something mm. that corporations or the government have set up when it should actually be the duty of the government and these corporations to inform citizens. Um, it, 
what is startling is that the community has taken it upon themselves to to do air quality monitoring when that really should be a responsibility of the the polluters themselves. Um, and one thing that is sort of missing from that description is uh, a significant site in the Chemical Valley is um, a, a sign that commemorates this place called the Village of Blue Water. And if you visit Sarnia, you'll see that the St. Clair River is incredibly blue. And the Village of Blue Water was a predominantly white community that was moved away from the factories when they started to get built in the Chemical Valley. But they, the government never moved the reserve, uh, never moved Amgenang. So it's, it's interesting to see that there is a commemoration of what the government has done to protect the safety of mm. white settlers. And yet Amgenang continues to exist surrounded by these factories. It's, it's clear environmental racism. Mm -hmm. Has there been any attempt uh, since throughout uh, the ongoing protests and coverage and so forth to move the community now? I think that's a very contentious thing is to move the community now. Mm -hmm. um, no, I don't, I don't think from the community members that I've interacted with that they're even interested in being moved, mm -hmm. especially because there are um, uh, burial grounds for ancestors so close to, to um, the community center right now. The community has existed there for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. uh, so really, it's, it's a shorter, much shorter history of these factories being there than the community of Amjanam being there. Um, so no, I haven't heard that there is interest in, in the community being moved itself. But again, no. I, I can't speak for every community member. And it would be another case of just sort of a, a continual colonial hand just wiping away exactly. the original inhabitants. Oh, exactly. So. Can you tell me who specifically Vanessa and Lindsey Gray are um, and what your relationship with them is like? Sure. So Vanessa and Lindsey Gray are water protectors from mm -hmm. Amshanong First Nation. They are community organizers. They also run an organization called Amshanong and Sarnia Against Pipelines, or ASAP. And they organize an event called the Amshanong Water Gathering that happens every August. Uh, and the final day of that event is the Toxic Tour, which is an initiative where community members in Amgenang take anybody who would like to learn about Amgenang mm -hmm. around the Chemical Valley to let people know about the impact of the valley on Amgenang. And so Vanessa and Lindsay grew up in Amgenang. Uh, now they work uh, in various universities across uh, Ontario, and they, they speak with students about uh, environmental racism and, and the Chemical Valley. Mm -hmm. Um, Vanessa, in particular, um, was also the subject of a few uh, more specific scenes in our show because she shut down Enbridge's Line 9 pipeline uh, in December of 2015. Mm. And she did that with two of her friends, and they were charged with mischief endangering life and mischief over $5,000. The charge of mischief endangering life uh, has a maximum sentence of 25 years in prison. <laughs> And so uh, when I heard about this action, I was looking for ways to build solidarity with Vanessa's case. And we connected for the first time at the Amjanang Water Gathering last year. And I asked Vanessa if she thought that uh, the theater might be a place to build solidarity with, with the community of Amjanang. And she said, I'm not sure, but let's give it a shot. Mm. And since then, we've been working together actively to tell this story accurately through our show. Very nice. When did you say you met her? last August. Okay, so you've been working with her for around a year now. That's right, yeah. Consistently for a year we've been developing the show. Nice. Um, 
And so, I mean, it's obviously a difficult subject to tackle as artists without first-hand experience growing up in the community. And you write that it's a, or I, I suppose on the website I read that it's a blend of documentary theater projections and object puppetry. Can you explain how these elements found their way into the production and what role uh, the sisters, Vanessa and Lindsay Gray, played in the development of that? Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, it's difficult, especially when talking about like issues regarding colonialism or uh, relationships between colonizers, settlers, and indigenous people mm -hmm. in this country to make art about that in yeah, in the modern day, in the wake of everything that's happened. Um, and that was definitely a concern for us still today, but especially in the early stages of the piece, just how we would be able to present this story in a way that was true to what true to what we were observing and documenting and what uh, people were telling us. But yeah, in a- Also not in appropriating art, a voice. But not appropriating, mm -hmm. creating a mm -hmm. piece of art that was a story that wasn't ours mm -hmm. and telling that story. Accurately through, I think it's important also, um, you mentioned the description of the show. The first part is documentary theater. So actually we don't, uh, we had a discussion early, early, early on in the, in the process with Vanessa about whether we wanted to work with potentially an indigenous actress to, mm -hmm. to play Vanessa. And in that discussion, we realized it's not appropriate for us to just hire somebody from uh, a indigenous community that's not Amjanang to pretend that they're, they have the experiences of somebody from the front lines. Mm -hmm. And so that uh, definitely guided the form that we took with this piece. Uh, throughout the piece, you hear directly from Vanessa and Lindsay. They appear in uh, video media, in audio, and, uh, and in photos, and from their own Facebook Live video, actually, uh, to start the show. And that's, that's crucial to us because we wanted to make sure that we're not speaking for them. We yeah. want to make sure that, that they are totally confident in the words that they're saying. They represent themselves exactly. and we're not exactly. constructing any of the the words that they're saying. Exactly. And the part that, that we have, uh, it's also a solo performance that's performed by me, um, is acknowledging uh, my place as a settler, as a first generation Canadian, mm -hmm. um, and that complicated relationship between um, not having done those historical injustices from my personal family history, but also understanding that putting claim to being Canadian means that you are complicit. Uh, in ongoing colonization and also that you benefit from from colonization that's happened in the past mm -hmm. so i think that's a thread that we are still looking to continue to explore but it's crucial that both of those perspectives are in the show i think also importantly it's a show both for settlers and for indigenous audiences definitely i would say more so for settlers mm -hmm. to think about their part in ongoing colonization and i think for indigenous audiences to see that there are settler creators that are trying to understand and listen and take a back seat and represent authentically. I think that's also significant. And also simply just to learn about what Vanessa and Lindsay are doing. Mm -hmm. Like I'm sure mm -hmm. there are people from both communities who are unaware of the yeah. activism that yeah. they're doing. So yeah. definitely another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly a very uh, tricky landscape to, uh, to navigate as an artist. Mm -hmm. um, so I still want to keep talking about the piece itself and uh, the aesthetic and how it works together, but uh, I suppose we'll take a break for a second. 
Yes, and our first song is from Dundas, Ontario's Dan Snaith, recording under the name Caribou, off his 2014 album One Love. The song is Julia Brightly. And welcome back to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, unless you're listening on the podcast or perhaps one of our uh, wonderfully appreciated syndicates. We are back still speaking with Kevin Matthew Wong and Julia Hellman of Broadleaf Theatre. We were in the middle of a discussion about the play itself, The Chemical Valley Project, which uh, they are currently still working on, has been uh, um, shown a, a number of times already and is still in its process of development. Um, now, I just wanted to dive a bit further into the, into the actual experience of the play. In what sense, how do the, the actual projections of the sisters speaking uh, work with your actions on stage? And what, what is object puppetry, and how does, that, how does that add to the narrative of the piece? So the, we use projections a lot in the piece because of one of the main reasons is what we were speaking about before. The, representation versus presenting a more constructed image of the women themselves. So uh, we use a lot of projections so we can show actual footage of them talking. Uh, We also kind of use more non-traditional projection surfaces to kind of change the actual physical layering of real objects, Kevin's body in the performance space, and the projected images and videos themselves. So for example, there's moments in the play when uh, Kevin holds a white sheet, which is the primary projection surface in the piece. He holds it in front of him, and there are images of the girls from one of the first interviews Kevin did with him projected on the sheet but then he lights himself from behind the sheet. So when he holds the sheet in front of him, you can see both the images of the women, but through the sheet, you can actually see his image as well. Mm -hmm. So in that way, we use video, but also uh, just like physical space and live performance to kind of um, hyperimpose Kevin into an image and make him present kind of recreating a time when he was Mm -hmm. actually physically interviewing them. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the main ways that projection is used in the piece is to just create, present accurate, uh, actual physical documentation of the research that we've done uh, of the women. But we also use video in the piece to actualize more non-realistic spaces, show how ideas grow in the character of Kevin's experience and how he um, starts to... Understand more? Understand more and physicalize activism, I would say. Mm. Become, like, actually present in a a different space in regards to activism. Yeah, I would say for Broadleaf as an environmental issues theater practice, the idea of scale is really crucial to us. We're asking people to see things in a different scale than they're used to. So for me, miniature objects have been present in every single Broadleaf production since the mm. beginning. Um, I think that's really important to my, my sense of aesthetic as an artist as well. Um, and there is an, a really crucial moment that Julie is referencing um, in the show where previously you'd only seen projections on this small sheet. It's about four feet wide, three or four feet wide, and about six or seven feet long. Uh, the projections were on that tiny surface. And there's a moment where we want to share the experience of being in front of the Supreme Court with us uh, at this protest in support of the Chippewas of the Thames First Nation and the Clyde River First Nation that took place about a year ago. January. In January of this year. 
And so we want to share that experience with people and also give people the sense that our understanding of these issues had deepened because we took the time to go to this protest and listen um, to community members. So uh, at that moment in the show, crucially, the projections change scale. So that's the first time that we project onto the back surface of the theater, the, the psych wall. Mm. Um, and now from this four foot by six foot sheet, you get the entire back wall of the theater. And then you see Kevin, Kevin's body in the space uh, in the same scale as the bodies of the activists in the video. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, through shadow. So you can, depending on how you're looking at the image, if you're just looking at the back wall, you'll see his shadow in scale with the other activists. If you're looking at the image as a whole, you'll see his actual body in the mm -hmm. space mm -hmm. in scale with the image. So to watch the play is to actually to witness you, your character on stage, learn about the issue and grow towards the issue? There's uh, an event in Toronto called Crapshoot uh, through Theatre Passamurai, and that's how we're sort of affiliated with that theatre now. And in Crapshoot, uh, they curate different artistic leaders from Toronto to adjudicate the evenings. And so the adjudicator for the second time that we presented at Crapshoot was an artist that I admire called Jenny Lausan. And Jenny uh, is an Indigenous theatre creator, and she sent us an email afterwards. And her comment was, through this piece, people are seeing you go through the process of reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And I thought, for us, that was reason to keep going. Um, there are some difficult questions that we've had to ask ourselves throughout the process. Uh, that drive to Ottawa that we had together, uh, it was four hours starting around 11. At yeah. night, 11 at night because um, we work in the theater so I was stage managing a show I just finished stage managing and opening night was the next night but we wanted to make sure that we went to that protest it was crucial for us mm -hmm. so and during that evening we had two friends with us that just listened to us discuss the topic argue argue <laughs> in a productive way uh, for four hours about about representation about voice about what the piece is and, and why it's significant why should why should we keep going why should not... we make it exactly yeah. mm -hmm. exactly so that's amazing so then your mm -hmm. your research for the piece as a, as a learning experience for yourself is then uh, placed onto the stage mm -hmm. and so that you're sort of going through the process of creating the piece on stage yeah mm -hmm. totally and uh, I think for us the idea of space is also really important for uh, the company itself we always think about like how do we not step on the toes of activists mm -hmm. they're already doing great work and, and getting coverage for their work how do we augment that work mm -hmm. how do we get people deeper understanding especially because people's interaction with that work typically is only through print media or even through like tv and, and blogs and things but it's not as direct like you're always getting this this distance from from activists and making it own your own mental picture of what's going yes, on yes exactly exactly yeah. yeah whereas in theater we're showing you the picture mm -hmm. and telling you about it at the same time mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you're meeting them. Yeah, and you're meeting them. You're yeah. experiencing and them, them physically. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Okay, so that I mean, I suppose that transitions uh, slightly into my uh, next um, question, which is: uh, there have obviously been a few documentaries made on the the problem throughout uh, in recent years, and protests have been going on for decades. Um, and as you say, there's actually been some recent uh, new uh, coverage on the issue. Um, what do you think the advent of a theatrical uh, production specifically uh, can do uh, to improve the situation? Or what is it about the theater that can move the dialogue forward in a new way against other types of media? Um, yeah. A big um, a driving thought for me in creating theater 
uh, even beyond Broadleaf, is the idea of having big conversations in small spaces. I think it's really a, a unique thing for people to gather, total strangers to gather in, in the space of a theater and suddenly become this audience, this idea of, of people who are experiencing something together. Mm -hmm. That's something totally unique, I think, that the theater can offer. And, and unlike a documentary that you might see in a theater, you're breathing with the performer. They're in live space, they can respond to you. Mm -hmm. If you heckle me during the show, <laughs> I have to respond to you. Uh, it's it's immediate, and and you hear the audience's responses to the stats that we present, and an auditory gasp is is so impactful in the theater. Like one of the sections of the show is just presenting facts from a study that happened in 2011, and the results are shocking. And it's it's different to see that on a TV screen than it is for somebody to speak those stats to you and and th there is so much to be said about the liveness of theater that we don't uh, get and, and and the interactivity of theater and the humanness of theater that we mm -hmm. don't get in our everyday lives mm -hmm. um, so I think that's why it's, it's crucially crucially important that this exists in the form that it does exist in mm -hmm. just to um return to the production itself of the Chemical Valley Project, which mm -hmm. is, has been in the works for around a year now, I suppose, mm -hmm. and uh, is still apparently in production, you say. So the Broadleaf Theatre is a company in residence at uh, Theatre Pass Marais uh, in Toronto. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're continuing to, continuing to develop the project. Now, in, in what sense is there a core um, embryo of the play there that will then that will expand out, or is, it, or is it conceivable the entire thing will be altered? Uh, I think there is a core that we we are on the same page about. But in terms of how does it change, it's totally responsive to what's happening at the moment, issues of the day. The, the closing segment of the show right now references whatever conversations are happening in, in, in the media uh, at, at the given time of presentation. Mm -hmm. But I would also say that the show started because we wanted to build solidarity with Vanessa's case. And at that time, it was a 10-minute piece that we just wanted to get Oh. Uh, circulated as widely as possible, letting people know about this uh, unjust charge. Mm -hmm. So it, it, by nature, it's meant to change, and the way that the the show um, looks and feels and sounds, uh, I think, uh, makes it quite open to change and and evolution. Yeah, I think there is a possibility that like the what the show the order that the show takes place mm -hmm. in could change drastically yeah. but like a lot the the embryo is, would definitely still mm -hmm. be the same it yeah, yeah it wouldn't and be more just like order that would change totally and we we yeah. also do have to keep updated with whatever's happening like Vanessa's case wrapped up in January so the show was adjusted to 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 reflect that mm -hmm. um and also we added the footage in from the protests that we were at in January with the mm -hmm. Chippewas of the Thames. And there are uh, new legal battles happening now in, in Amshanang that we hope to to learn more about. Um, yeah. And incorporate into the production. Exactly. So you, you say it's right now is around a half hour show. Mm -hmm. About uh, 35 minutes, yeah. And you're looking to bring it to an hour. Mm -hmm. And so in, in, is it possible that the, the narrative experience uh, can change or is it simply going to become longer and richer? I think something about the narrative experience will change even as we've moved yeah. from like 20 minute versions of the piece to the 35 minute version that exists now. Um, 
just the the issues of scale that we were talking about mm -hmm. that those kind of concepts uh, got developed a lot yeah. even just with the addition of the 15 minutes yeah. so I would say as we move forward to expand it to 60 I think those kind of visual landscapes will be developed more and exaggerated more because a lot of the um, aesthetic in the show is like a contrast between a realistic space and like feeling in the room and a more like grandiose um, like magical mm. feeling and transformation of the space mm -hmm. so I think as we have more time to sit down and develop um, images in that kind of more grandiose realm and kind of the contrast between those two realms will probably develop more and deepen. I would say that that would be a big visual change to the show as we keep developing. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you said it was originally about, you say Lindsay, it was Lindsay's case? Uh, Vanessa's case. Vanessa's yeah. case. So Vanessa Gray's case. And she was charged... Um, With uh, mischief endangering life and mischief over $5,000. So whose life was she endangering? Aha. So that's, that's something that we discuss in the show. Mm. Um, <laughs> the public Basically, is uh, <laughs> so she's so, stopping the pipeline and so she's endangering the public if, yes if wow. the pipeline was to burst or malfunction yes. as a result of her stoppage of it and oh. someone was to be injured that's that's the endangerment of life that would, was yes. that arose in her case yes. but they ended up spoiler alert for the play and mm -hmm. just for history but you can please research this um, her charges got dropped mm. because Enbridge would have had to prove that their own pipeline had the capability to endanger, to endanger life by a simple stoppage yes. for less than an hour. Wow. So, so if the pipeline has that capability. Yeah, it was better PR for, <laughs> for Enbridge to drop the charge than to, drop to, than the to, charges. to, to pursue the case. And, and for reference to Vanessa and her two friends that shut down that pipeline with her were not the first people to shut down that pipeline. They were the first people to have that charge. Um, really? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In turn, oh, okay. so there were uh, there were I believe two other uh, groups of people that had shut down the Line Nine White pipeline people. before. Yes, ah, uh, one for sure was in Quebec, um, and I'm not sure about the the, the other one before them, but mm -hmm. uh, they were shocked that they had received that charge. Yeah, that's um, amazing. I mean, there is really there's something about the indigenous present uh, presence it seems in these uh, protests that aggravates the uh, companies and the government in a way that. Uh, yeah. Others don't, I suppose, because they know that ultimately they don't have, they have to rely on the Queen's authority uh, if they want to go back to, to try to say that they have true legal authority over these people mm -hmm. uh, because they never bought into to Canada itself. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's because ultimately they know they don't. Yeah. And they'll just continue to subvert mm -hmm. government forces that they find to be unfair. Yeah, in mm -hmm. that sense, they're really the most uh, powerful activist uh, force in a country. If, if you have a group of people that really has no reason to believe in the country itself. Yeah. Well, especially in terms of land protection. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. a, like if you speak to Lindsay and Vanessa, it's very clear to them that it's like a, it's a personal duty. Mm -hmm. It's yes. not just mm -hmm. like a, mm -hmm. uh, I, I went to university and now I'm an environmental activist. Yeah, yeah absolutely. No. Yeah. It's, and it is cultural, like so much of our learning for this piece and, um, has been about learning about Anishinaabe beliefs mm -hmm. and teachings and protection of the earth for seven generations into the future mm -hmm. is integral mm -hmm. to Anishinaabe belief. That's something that I think is incredibly hard for 
a Western settler to to mm-hmm. even think about seven generations in the future. Yeah, with every action that you take. Yeah. 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 Um, you mentioned that there has been more recent uh, interest in the Chemical Valley problem uh, just in the past few weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know why uh, there's more coming out about it now? Has something true? Has something even more egregious occurred, or is it, or is it simply a buildup over years of uh, discussion? There wasn't. I wouldn't say that there was like a tide turning event. There wasn't like a major leak or a major flare that resulted in anything. There was a giant flare, but it was in 2014. Two big things that are going on kind of this week. There was the coverage by uh, the traditional news media uh, that I think was just an accumulation of research for many years. Mm -hmm. Um, And the fact that when we were doing research on this show, a lot of the coverage was a little bit dated and a lot of yes. the research was a little bit dated. Yeah, like so, the most current statistics when we were doing research from the show were mostly from between 2012 and 2014, yeah. which was around the time of another large leak from yes. Suncor, which yeah, was the yeah. last time that this was like kind of popular yeah. in the media. So I do think a, a little bit of it is it was time. Um, and then another thing that's happening is the video that we show you at the beginning of the show is a Facebook Live video that Vanessa took about a major flaring event that took place, I believe, at Imperial Oil. And that is uh, that video and that event is the basis for Vanessa uh, going to the provincial and federal governments to demand better air quality uh, monitoring. And so that is a second um, news event that's happened in this past week. Mm-hmm. So those things together, I think, are really... Um, bringing the issue back to the forefront. And actually, Catherine McKenna uh, did make a statement on the Chemical Valley after those articles from oh, the really? Star and that global documentary was released. Hmm. I suppose there's also some, there's a, I mean, there's the whole tide of the Canada 150 year. Absolutely. Which has been a hugely contentious, I mean, across the, across the country. So, yeah, I, mean, I suppose that certainly um, people are, for better or for worse, in many cases, people are paying more attention to Indigenous issues. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, this year in particular, mm-hmm. even though it has uh, ruffled uh, <laughs> the, uh, the the gray wigs of our uh, <laughs> of our of our uh, system here. So I guess we'll just wrap up with, uh, I suppose, if you could just tell me something about the history of how many times you've produced it and the play itself and what uh, and it's uh, when will it be uh, produced in the future? Sure. So The show, uh, we've been lucky enough to perform it in spaces all over Toronto uh, in various versions. Uh, Our most recent run was at the Summerworks Performance Festival this August, uh, and that uh, was at the Pia Bauman Theatre. After that, we continued to tour it. We brought the show to Manitoulin Island, uh, to to one of our, our, um, should I say, sister theatre companies, friend friend theatre companies, uh, Dabajimajig Storytellers. Uh, they are also an Anishinaabe uh, theater company, oh. uh, and so we learned from them. Uh, we learned a lot from them, from Sunny, their uh, traditional knowledge keeper at the company, when we visited them, and we also presented the work there. Uh, and then we presented the work just two weeks ago at the Amshanang Water Gathering. So the piece kind of came full circle. Uh, I met Vanessa and Lindsay through that event last year, and then we got to show our work our progress uh, wow. at that event uh, 
to the community. And it was the first time that uh, many of the community members had seen the work. And what was, was their reaction? Uh, they were, I think, surprised to, to see uh, how developed it had been. Mm. Um, and also, I think they were pleased with the way that the story was being told through Vanessa and Lindsay mm. and, and the way that we implicate settlers. The, the purpose of the Amjanong water gathering is to have predominantly settlers come and learn about what's mm. happening. Mm -hmm. The community of Amjanong already knows that's their everyday reality. So we were trying to find a creative way to do our part, and I think that that showed at the Amjanong water gathering. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Excellent. Um, and so you mentioned. Uh, you have a, a couple shows planned for January? We do, yeah. So we're going to continue working on the piece uh, until January. And in January, we are uh, in residence uh, through this thing called the Buzz Series at Theatre Passmarai. So we are going to be uh, in their space for a week. And a few weeks uh, prior to that, we'll be in a rehearsal space. But we'll have a full week in their theatre space and have two public presentations at the Theatre Passmarai Backspace. One will be on Saturday, January the 7th, and the other on Sunday, January the 8th. Mm. Yeah. So January 7th and 8th, 2018. Yeah, and uh, you can find out more about us at broadleaftheater.com mm -hmm. and on Facebook and, and Twitter. Excellent. All right, well, uh, thank you very much, Kevin Matthew Wong and Julia Hammond, for joining us on The Green Majority. Uh, this has been wonderful. And um, Thanks thank for having you. us. <laughs> And our second song today is from the Inuk artist Tanya Tagak of Nunavut, off her 2016 album Retribution. All right, welcome back to the live portion of this week's Green Majority. I am your co-host today. I've been given permission by Stefan to speak. Yes, that's how, that's how this works. <laughs> uh, he's just getting his revenge for all the other weeks where I cut his mic. Yeah, exactly. It's it's yeah. it's it's it's, it's good. Uh, eventually, the uh, the chickens come home to roost. That's right. Well, uh, the, uh, thanks very much to uh, Dave for putting that uh, largely together for us. Very appreciated, and uh, and of course, uh, uh, Stefan. <laughs> Because he's here. Yes, and and all of Broadleaf Theater, and uh, the the two guests as well. Absolutely. Yes. Um, so we just have a few minutes left, and uh, we just want to spend that talking about the approval. Now it was uh, it was uh, in the wee morning hours, I believe that this was actually announced. But there we have been discussing the last few weeks the Nebraska Keystone XL pipeline. Uh, it was approved by a narrow three to two margin. Um, important detail number one, I would say, was that uh, if you follow American politics at all, you will know that it is significant that a single, uh, there are four Republicans on this uh, uh, public service commission, one Democrat. Hmm. The vote was three to two, which means that one Republican crossed the aisle, as it were, uh, especially in the hyper-partisan atmosphere of the already normalized hyper-partisan atmosphere of the American politics, the even more hyper-partisan environment of Donald Trump uh, is significant. If a single Republican crosses over, remember, of course, that uh, it only took two defections to stop a health care bill and it may only take two defections to stop an upcoming tax so there's an, uh, you know and this is the era of of loyalty first so um i don't know i uh, i think there's a detail worth pointing out that the the case is so bad that even a republican couldn't vote for it mm -hmm. uh, even though it went ahead now why are we not super terribly uh concerned we'll get to that uh in just a minute but one of the one of the other uh details of course was that the um 
the pipeline will carry if it does in fact go ahead despite being approved it may not go ahead we'll get to that in a second but if it does go ahead it's 1200 miles and will carry uh close to a million barrels a day 830,000 barrels of oil a day uh and the recent spill uh of about 210,000 gallons in south dakota uh explicitly not taken into account um so this uh, obviously has been going on for quite some time. This was a decision that was reversed from Obama, who had put the stop to this project. Trump, of course, put the green light. Um, but Stefan, there, there's some optimism still, and people don't sound too nervous. There's a people, uh, and just aside generally from the the gearing up of resistance, there was some optimism. Yeah, which is which is rare. <laughs> yeah, optimism despite uh, a loss, which is also super, rare. Yeah, even more rare. I I feel like it sort of it speaks to how emboldened is maybe the wrong word. Uh, but but um, more confident at the very right. least. Yeah. Uh, there's a level of confidence I think within the within the environmental movement now surrounding these pipeline fights as we've as they've been won. You know, as they've been piece by one by as they've been won over and over again. What's interesting is that there's not. Um, is that you know that that Keystone XL was the first victory, which now obviously it's now back. But in that time, Energy East has been has been has been basically killed by uh by its backers uh you know, we've seen we've seen the 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 trans mountain pipeline uh in bc uh also be also be stopped that actually by the canadian by the canadian government um and and so these these interestingly in, environmentalists are getting a little cocky uh or not cocky but at least they're, they're at least at least they're not they're not seeing these sort of regulations as necessarily the only way to stop something right right um an emphasis on litigation an emphasis on on court battles and i think also uh, part of that has to do with as well is that uh i mean here now is even as we're referencing now this uh i'm referencing at least the uh, guardian article which you can find and we'll post of course as usual um is that the you know even though the decision went ahead the oil company's response was uh quoting the guardian's choice of words here muted and uh and the reason for that is because due to the delay and the fact that they know that there's even with the approval there's going to be a, a whole bunch of court battles that will be pressed there's going to be on the ground resistance they are quickly running out of time for these projects to make sense even for them even with all the advantages that they have and so despite this the oil company itself may in fact not even go ahead they of course did they didn't even get their preferred route this was like an alternate route that was significantly i believe to the west uh, of where they were hoping for it, which makes the increases the cost, which of course uh, makes it even harder for them to for this to make sense for them. Um, so I mean, even you know they they want a decision to get their project approved, and nobody is seems terribly happy over at TransCanada. So uh, I think there's a reason. Yeah, cockiness I think would be would be r the wrong choice of words in this case because there does appear to be a lot of reason for optimism in this yeah, case. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I I I, I think the what's interesting here is that. The this this is a decision that didn't go exactly how TransCanada wanted. Uh, the the route itself actually is a little different than they than they wished. Um, and there's it's, it's the another another great word by the Guardian in, in this article uh, is that it's going to face a thicket of legal challenges. Mm. I really, uh, for some reason, a thicket of legal challenges really does seem like a mm -hmm. like a harder to get through than almost well, anything else. I wonder if it would the the nature imagery was intentional. Yeah, perhaps it's possible. Um, yeah, but so it, it's like it's almost certainly going to be challenged immediately in the courts by Native American groups and environmental groups uh, that claim the pipeline uh, endangers water supplies and will worsen climate change. Uh, I want to point out the endangers water supplies kind of was proved last week by the two. <laughs> but they didn't take by that the two two hundred ten thousand yeah. gallons of. Uh, 
uh, of oil they spilled into a lake. Uh, so I feel like that one far like, away. Check, yeah, yeah, exactly. not too far away either. Uh, well, yeah. and from the pipeline, that they're, from they're planning to expand. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, it's sort of I feel like that one is a pretty much like yes, that is true. Um, and and not to mention the the argue, the climate argument is also pretty pretty solid. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so the, yeah, so the, the line as you quoted earlier actually from. Uh, from, that Bill McKibben was saying that lawyers uh, were cheerful and there's lots of room to fight. Uh, and then from Michael Brune, uh, or Brune, I'm not certain, uh, from who's executive director of the Sierra Club, uh, also said that that said that their movement, our moot quote, our movement defeated this pipeline once and we will do it again, mm-hmm. which is a, a pretty fair point on his part. Like what's what's kind of amazing about the Keystone XL pipeline is that we're still talking about it. This is a pipeline that in my third, I think my second or third year of university, so this would have been, at this point, about seven years ago, seven or eight years ago, uh, I was sitting in a class, and the and the professor uh, at the uh, at the time uh, asked the class who thought Obama would approve the Keystone XL pipeline, and everyone in the class put their hand up. And so this is, I mean, that's just eight, eight, seven, eight years ago, an entire class of people who chose to take environmental policy course had so little faith that this would not be stopped, that this would be stopped, that no one, that no one, that everyone was like, yes, this got passed. Mm. And eight years later, here we are talking about how it passed yet another regulation, uh, you know, regulation thing, but it's been eight years already. And, and as you mentioned, I think that's the key here is that even the oil companies see that time is is running out for them to make this money. I think there's a there's a dwindling opportunity here for them to make to get this out of the ground and make some money off it. And they're and that writing on the wall is really causing them some fear. Yeah, absolutely. The um uh and and I think part of what the the difference would be in the uh, uh, analysis of those those students, I would have been very tempted to agree with them. I'm, I'm, I likely would have at the time. Had I been in that class, but the, I think the major the major deciding factor there that was not taken into account was the the absolute um, fearlessness and courage of the First Nations groups that have been opposing to it have I think been the deciding factor. Certainly not the only contributing factor, and I, I don't want to uh, belittle anyone else's contribution, but I I, I think that it has been a significant uh, counterpoint. Uh, to some of the other things and that uh, you know and the, the support that's been offered to them but particularly first nation groups that have been standing on the front lines uh, I think have been the thing that that pushed that over the edge and yeah. made that happened I just really quickly before we end here and I'll give Stephanie the last word here is I want to read one line from the Guardian article about that very subject uh, here uh, quoting uh, nothing has changed at all in our defense of land, air, and water uh, in the uh, Oseti Sakawan lands, uh, said Faith Spotted Eagle, a member of the Yuktan Sioux Nation located in South Dakota. Uh, if anything, it has become more focused, stronger, and more adamant after Standing Rock. Absolutely uh, agreed. Um, last word, Stefan, goes to you. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna finish this off by this ask, uh, trying to look into this question that the the Guardian actually asks in a different article uh, about whether or not Keystone XL is still feasible. Uh, which is which is a fascinating like the fact that we're even asking that question right uh, is is proof of how far we've come, and and the in the biggest in the biggest thing here and this is something that I think that we're that I'm gonna I've been sort of harping on for a while and I'm gonna come back to for half a second is just that the everyone keeps presuming that this will make sense when oil prices go back up 
Quote, like and, and and there's no guarantee that oil prices will go back up. Like there's this there's this piece which like everyone is just presuming that this is the necessary next step, right? That that's like oh oil prices will return to normal, quote unquote, and then that will be happening. Despite the fact that what we're seeing around the world is this such a clear move away from using oil in the way we've been using historically, and so there's no. We're, we, we the argument should be from a supply and demand side that if these efforts are successful and especially with this, with a lot of the moves towards electric vehicles, um, you know even you know Elon Musk and Tesla now released their electric tru- uh, trucks, which would massively affect like if they were rolled out, it would massively affect the the demand for for oil. We should expect the prices to not only stay where they are but to get cheaper. And and this is the problem for Canada because if they are relying on this type of, uh, of 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 opportunity to make sure that they get uh, that they that they find a market and that the market exists and that they make enough money because it's expensive to pull this stuff out of the ground too, then they're then they're really not only are they in trouble but we as a society who are based in some ways off these oil revenues uh, are also in trouble and so the faster we can get off it the better. All right, we are out of time. Thank you very much, Stefan and Dave and uh, the, uh, the, our guests today. Uh, stay tuned. There will be a, uh, not heard for for a while, but a brief bonus show this week. If you're listening on the podcast or you want to get on the podcast, go to greenmajority.ca. We're looking to post that Monday. Uh, we'll have some important information, an important update about the show that, uh, that we, don't, uh, we don't include here on the radio version. If you're interested in knowing uh, what's going on behind the scenes here at the Green Majority, check the website for that. Get on the, uh, the podcast through greenmajority.ca. Other than that, have a good Green Week, folks. Thank you so much for listening and take care. We'll talk real soon. 